a lot of artists, like anywhere from, let's say, like 50 to 70% of your revenue is taken by your label. You know, so in this period where it's literally just, we're just splitting it two ways and <laughs> we keep it moving. It's been a blessing in this period. I also think that like, you know, the fact that we're able to just like, you know, because we've always been like very militant in that, no, we're not paying radio. No, we're not paying TV. So actually like, you know, if you don't play it, that's your own, you know, and it's hindered us for a long time, but now it's now a more democratized setup where it's youtube it's instagram it's social media you can create a song here now in london ghost can create his verse in lagos we put it out and it's gone around the world tomorrow you know and so for me it's like now the playing field is somewhat even welcome to third culture africans the lifestyle podcast for dreamers thinkers and doers We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezo Ariaki-Sal, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Wale Davis, a modest, open artist who is a true student of his craft, believes in technology solutions for fostering and growing the creative community in Africa. He's a pioneer of independent music in Africa. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Wale. Hi, Wale. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you. Thank you for having me and inviting me on. Yeah, you're officially our first artist, musician, okay. entrepreneur. Okay. When I started the, the idea of the show, I really wanted to be able to show, I guess, a variety of people in various careers and music was was one of the things i think culturally as africans music plays a huge role in our psyche as people it plays a huge role in our community and especially in our society and with you musician shodem camp aka tech do you still go by tech by the way <laughs> yeah it's really weird like because i think my personal life has merged into like my like yeah creating of music or art or whatever you want to call it like I feel a lot of people just call me Wale now like a lot of people some people still call me tech it's yeah it's whichever they choose I'm happy fab okay entrepreneur so record label owner production company video and film director talent manager and all-around sort of creative and the evolution thereof looking into your digital footprint you started off in corporate, right? Good African kid, got your degrees, and then went into finance and started building a decent career, right? In, in finance. Yeah. Um. So I, I, where did I start? Like, so basically, I when I was in the UK, like I just when I was at university, I'd look for jobs, and the ones I found that paid the best, to be honest, not like I had a great love for finance, but the ones I found that paid the best were because I went to university in Brighton in in the UK and um there were there were jobs at Lloyd's and American Express and they were mostly credit based jobs 
that's what was offered to students. But then in getting in to the company, they quickly, I guess, somehow shifted me along different departments in American Express whilst I was still a student, whilst I was still trying to graduate. And then I feel as a result of that, when I started looking for employment after um, after I graduated, I took a year out and then I started looking for a job and everyone I knew, most of my friends were all like very highly ambitious, like finance-based people. So I guess most of the stuff that was coming my way were finance-based jobs. So I applied um, to work at Cisco Systems. Um, they had a management, financial management graduate training program that, um, yeah, that I applied and somehow... I say somehow because like I was probably the least qualified person at their interviews, but yeah, somehow managed to get. So I moved out to Amsterdam for two years and worked with them. Nice. And then you said you took a year out. Was the year out to sort of figure out if you were doing the music thing with Shodem Camp or? No, not at all. So with music, it always it was never a plan to be a musician as a career. Like it was like I just. Um, I think just with background and family and things like that, it just never really seemed like a viable or worthwhile plan. And I just felt like the the obstacles to pursue that as a career were like too much, you know. So at the time I was rapping at university and we were meeting producers in London and mm-hmm. um, and we had like put out a song that then we weren't even called Show Them Camp, we were called Loose Cannons <laughs> randomly. But mm-hmm. um we put out a song that won some BBC One Extra competition. So we, our song got played on radio. You know, we thought, oh, wow, we've made it. And then nothing came from that. And then I think it just kind of showed me that, look, man, like this is not, it's a good, nice thing to do at university. It's a thing you enjoy doing and you really love doing. Um, you can always just do it on the side anyway, but you have to now face the real world and get a job and do what, you know, normal people do. And so, yeah, and so that was what I did. I took a year out because I think I've never really, and it's a shame in a way, because I've never really approached academics with any real, like it's never really been difficult, but at the same time, I've never ever applied myself seriously towards academics. I always did exactly what I needed to do to pass. You know, like literally, if if the if the cutoff was like seventy percent, I would get like seventy one or seventy two, because I never really, I just never really enjoyed it, to be honest. Um, and so after doing it, like I had before, I went to Brighton. I'd gone to another university for two years where I did absolutely nothing. So I was just like fatigued from studying and being in a structured environment. So I was like, look, I just need a year to laze about and basically do nothing really enjoy life as you'd say yeah gap year basically pretty much yeah pretty much figure it out know what you're doing travel a little what i found interesting actually is you are my second african university of brighton alumni who has done great things in like the creative industry and I'm starting to wonder if there's something about being in University of Brighton that seems to create a cultural shift in people's minds. I think more than anything, it, it creates a opens you up to different sides of, I guess, what could be viewed as liberal thought. Because, you know, coming from Nigeria, for example, and it's a touchy thing to talk about, but coming from Nigeria, for example, like the concept of like, I don't know, homosexuality was completely alien and foreign and and 
demonized and all those things. And then I went to Brighton and then, you know, so I got there as this like super, I wouldn't say homophobic black African guy, but I was just like, yeah, you guys still over there, you know, don't come near me, all of that. But then in being there, I think it makes you a more, I guess not tolerant, but more understanding of different people and different types of people. And yeah, and I think as well, because Brighton at the time, I don't know if it still is, was kind of like a big hub for like gay culture and gay life in, in England. And so at the time, I remember, and I remember when I went there and I used to work in a club and I would tell the managers in the club, like, I, I don't want to work any nights where it's like, you know, I just want to work the straight nights. Like that should, you know, and I even lied to them. I was like, is it my religion in Africa? You know, we can't do this. And, <laughs> Were you getting hit on? <laughs> no, I just wouldn't want to work those nights. I just thought like, I, I don't know. I, just, I don't know what I expected to see. I thought maybe I will just see like intense debauchery or something that would scar me for life um and one day they called me in because I was probably at that point the most senior person working at the club and everybody both of the um two managers we had had called in sick on the same day so the owner had to come in and I remember he called me in that day and it was like double pay and I didn't even know what the night was I just went because of double pay and I get there and he's like, oh yeah by the way it's a gay night I hope you haven't got a problem with that and I was like uh like now nah, I'm here what do I do like do I you know so I kind of just stayed behind the bar <laughs> you know behind the bar. and it was it was funny because I was just watching people and like and I didn't leave the little radius behind the bar the whole time I'd send people out to to work and do stuff but I realized that like these are actually just like human beings having fun, or admittedly in their own orientation and sexual disposition, but they're just having fun like everybody else, you know, and they're just like having a great time. And you like, and it kind of demystified a lot of that for me. And I think Brighton, you know, like I, I would say really like, yeah, it made me have a lot more understanding and insight to just different types of people. Like if, if there was one thing, I was already doing music beforehand, so I don't know if it was, you know, if it played a part. I do know that there were a lot of great bands and and a lot of great shows to constantly go to. But I think if it if there was one thing I would say Brighton did, it was uh, it just made me more aware of that people can be different and that's fine. You know, people can live a different life and that's fine. You know, I feel like there's this thing that we have, a lot of the systems that, we grow up with tell us that if it's not your way, it's wrong, you know? And yeah. And I think it just kind of broke down a lot of that. I, I think um, my experience moving into the UK, I, I guess my leaving Africa and, and coming here and also within Africa, um, I grew up in a multicultural setting. So coming here, it wasn't that stark, um, but I can imagine how, that experience then makes you start to question a lot of your cultural norms and values and being confronted with the fact that there is, you know, there are differences in cultural norms and values, depending on where you go. And I'm sure you've seen this a lot with, with your career so far. We kind of jumped into, I guess, a certain space in your life and pre-music, pre-adult Wally, uh, aka tech, you come from, I guess, uh, a home with siblings. You have, you lost your father quite early on in, in, in your life. Yes. And pretty much raised by a single parent. Yeah. Do you feel like that shaped you? Like you spoke about working at university, you know, whether it was the club or working at American Express. I worked through university. 
I wasn't at American Express though. I was at Barclay card. So, mm. uh, yeah. and people would ring up and you tell them their balance. Yep. They want Same. to do a balance transfer. Same. Um, Same. What's my, you know, they want to increase their limit, but you're like, oh, sorry, your, you know, your credit rating is not, you know, what it should be to increase <laughs> the limit. Um, and I remember actually amongst some of my um, peers at the time, you know, the working while studying seemed foreign, but also there was a, oh my God, I can't believe you get to work. But the reality was I didn't really have much of a choice not to work. Was that the same for you or were you, you know, what what was the driving factor behind, I guess, all of that? Yeah, because I was raised by my mom and at the time... You know, I guess it's like a, it almost sounds like a Nollywood film script in, in some ways where like my dad was from a relatively affluent family. And, and at the time when he passed, um, so like my older brother and sister had to like, they went to boarding school in the UK at age nine, like, you know, both of them from age nine. Um, And so at the time when my dad passed, like, I guess there was a lot of like, financial instability um because also you know like he um being an african man at that time probably didn't want his wife to work um didn't involve her in too much of his business affairs so i guess after um he passed a lot of his business partners you know i'll say did us dirty let's put it that way um but in a lot of ways like yeah, but like that's a common a African of... story, right? Like, yeah, and even not even African, that's just a common story in general. Yep. Yeah, no, it is. I think that it's, um, yeah, I, I just feel that like it's just human, human nature, human greed a lot of times as one spectrum of human nature, I'd say. And so, yeah, so I mean, like there was a lot of financial insecurity. And then obviously at the same time, my mother tried her best to maintain as much like obviously my brother and sister are in these expensive schools in the UK. She doesn't want to bring them back. She wants to maintain their sort of like level of education, um, you know, and then at the same time. So for me, I was the first one. And I, I don't remember growing up, I used to be so upset about it. And it's such a weird thing now because like at the time I was so angry that, you know, I didn't get to go to Europe and, you know, and, like and you know why did I not why how come I'm I have to go to King's College of all schools in in Nigeria boarding school in Nigeria and so I was very angry about that but then also is this weird thing because you also understand that your mom is going through these things you know so for me it was uh it was like a lot I think a lot of like my foundational lessons are taken from my mother they are lessons that she like for almost everything in life I kind of remember when she taught me that specific lesson like maybe it's greed or don't steal or don't like don't envy other people or you know I remember specific situations where she would tell me those things Um, and then coming to the UK I would like to say that me working during university was you know, some sort of like, you know, generous act or, you know, no. something I chose. <laughs> no. But really what what it was is that I'd gone to another university, um, Coventry, for two years. I literally, when I left Coventry University was when I got into Brighton. So that's after two years of university, my third year in Brighton. Um, and all this time I was telling my mom like, yeah, I'm in year two, <laughs> you know, I'm in year three, I'm about to graduate. But I, I had to like repeat 
um, yeah, I had to repeat because I didn't go to university those two years at all. Like when I got to Brighton was the first time I realized that the difference between a lecture and a seminar, like I just had, yeah, and that's two years in university. So I think she kind of sussed after the second year, she was like, okay, so your graduation is next August. And I was like, "Eh, no, 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 I'm changing. And, you know, the course I'm changing to, you know, it has an additional three years, you know, um, to the two I've already done. I think at that point, she never said it, but I think she knew straight away that this kid is clearly lying. And, but I think she was just happy I was getting out of Coventry and out of like the friend group I was in at the time. But she said to me, like, look, I'm not, this time it's going to be different. This time I'm not giving you all this like pocket money or I'll pay your rent and everything else you figure out, you know? And then after like the first year of her paying my rent and me figuring it out, like I realized that, okay, I was able to get a student loan. I actually enjoyed working, so I didn't need money. So I've been like independent in that way since probably like my first year at university in Brighton. I just never looked back really. So what were you doing for two years? I was partying. I was rapping. I was kissing women or girls at the time. (laughs) Um, It was like Coventry was a very Nigerian school. And because before I went to Coventry, I went to Dublin. And and in Dublin, I felt like very disconnected from Nigerians, from like, Mm. you know, from... Your community. Yeah, my community. So I looked for... It's crazy because I got accepted into Leeds and Coventry and I chose Coventry because I heard there were more Nigerians and it was a party school and you know so I literally went there to you know hang out with Nigerians your friends yeah I didn't but in context right Dublin then was I guess Dublin circa 2000 and what 2000 probably a bit earlier than that (laughs) okay and so there's no black community as it is now like there was none like so you would see another black person on the road you've never met them before but you stop and speak to each other you'd be like hey yeah. where are you from you're from kenya oh i'm from nigeria oh great let's exchange numbers and then we'd exchange I, we had that old phone where you had like snake on the phone yeah that's how old it was <laughs> you know and then we'd exchange numbers and we might call each other again we might go to the one black club where they it's not even a black club the one club where no, they the, play. where they, they have one hip-hop night or a hip-hop set exactly. or an r&b set or something exactly. my sister lived in belfast um oh wow for a wow. few years so um i i totally understand the mm-hmm. context i think yeah. obviously with everything going on now the nuances of being an immigrant in a predominantly European setup sort of speaks volumes now. I think a lot of people can start to understand some of the challenges that are faced. But nonetheless, you decide to, you know, you have your career in finance and then in 2008 decide that you're giving up your career and you're moving to Africa to become a creative. No, that was, I wish, again, I wish it was that, like, um definitive but no so literally I was having a hard time at the job because basically I had I had been told that I could go to Amsterdam for two years and move back to London with the same job so and I had a really like really um difficult 
manager at the time because I do these rotations into different departments and everywhere I went mm. everyone loved me I'm even trying to be funny like everyone loved me all the departments and then the last rotation was six months with this Belgian lady and you know now when I look back at it you know especially in the context of what's happening today I noticed yeah. that there were a lot of things that were very insidious forms of mm. racism to be quite honest yeah. microaggressions um, right Yes, microaggressions. There was like a lot of like, I don't even know. I remember one particular incident when we went for this um, review because we'd have, because it was a special program within the company. They take us to different countries to have these reviews and they bring everyone from the same programs in different countries into this new. So we went to Paris for this weekend and I'd had my review before I left Amsterdam and they were like, wow, Wally, your shoes, like, yeah, you're doing really good. And then I get to Paris and I'm like, happy because I think my review is going to be great she's going to give me great feedback and then everyone who was in that meeting came out some of my previous managers and they were like wow what have you done to her and I was like I don't understand and they're like yeah like I've never heard a worse review like literally in fact it was so bad that we thought it was like really personal and so they told me some of the stuff she was saying like you know that um I'm very unapproachable. I'm very angry all the time. <laughs> I was like, literally, oh my God, I, angry black man. Yeah, like I'm literally angry. I'm unapproachable. A lot of people feel intimidated by me. Oh, wow. You know, and yeah. So then when I went to like, I guess like confront her about it, like, sorry, I mm. heard this. And she was like, look, I'm really like, I, you know, it was almost like I'm about to attack her or something. And I was like, I feel no, threatened. Like, yeah. Karen. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> I just want to Karen. have it you know, proper conversation about what's going on. And yeah, and it was just stuff like that. So at that point, I tried to move back to London. She blocked a couple of, I'd gotten another role in London. I was trying to, I'd set everything up and she was like, nope, you can't go. You have to stay um, with me after your rotation. I'm going to keep you for another six months. And I was like, literally, but you don't like me. So why not just like, let me go. Um, So at the time I was very frustrated. I went to Lagos for Christmas that year. I met some Mm -hmm. friends. Uh, my partner in SDC actually at the time he had moved back a year before and so he had a group of friends in Lagos and they were about to do a concert around Nigeria with Two-Face um, it was called Two-Face and Friends um, and they were the ones organizing the concerts and, and it's a tour so they were the ones organizing the tour and they were like look we want you to come and work with us um, we're building a team after this we want to do like these tours around Africa and so I was like, oh, well, I've got a great job. I'm all right. I went back to Amsterdam. And then it was just this year of the financial uh, crisis globally. Um, and at the time, I was just like, you know, I can't really. I got back. It was January, February. The weather was horrible. Everything was, you know, gray. And I was just like, you know, I could be in Nigeria right now on this tour with these guys. So actually, I'm going to take a six-month sabbatical made up some story about my relative being ill <laughs> or something and I had to go and take care of your relative or something. I don't even remember what I said and they um, they allowed me to take a sabbatical for six months. And I actually just did that so that in case it didn't work out and I needed to come back to my job, that, you know, that window would be open. Um, but yeah, but I never, I never went back. So it wasn't a plan. And then from the tour was kind of how, because I was still in Nigeria and I'd seen all these like, new artists and new energy around the music you know I was like okay well why don't we try and see what making music in Nigeria would look like you know and then we started doing and we'd build friendships with a lot of these artists so like people like Two-Face, NECA, MI, people like this were on our first album 
which you know which a lot of times you'd probably to spend years in the industry trying to develop these relationships but we knew them like fresh off this tour so yeah so we're just like let's try and put out a song and then we put out a song and then our community of like friends and people really sort of like bandied around us which gave us a lot of belief in what we were doing and then we just continued from there really so it wasn't it was kind of i wouldn't say we stumbled into it but like because we'd already been doing music before but I, i yeah i would say it wasn't really deliberate to move to nigeria and pursue a music career this podcast is sponsored by malay natural science malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes alluring scents and ancient wisdom of africa their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100 natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal protect and pamper your skin malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. So even with the recognition of, you know, winning the BBC One Extra thing, and to be fair, hip-hop and the music scene isn't what it is. To, and, well, I say the African music scene isn't what it is today. I remember I went to say uni parties and, you know, Banky W coming to sing at them. Um, and... Then it was, I guess, seen as something people did as a hobby. It wasn't very much a career, especially for, I guess, middle-class kids. It was something you did because you enjoyed it, but it wasn't a career. And then arriving and starting to want to forge ahead in it as a career, what, like, when did that shift start to happen? Because it's completely different for any young kid today, right? They've seen the successes of you guys yeah. into so the... They, yeah, there's a template they can follow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for us, there was no template. <laughs> First of all, I'd say the closest thing was I went to the same... Well, myself and my Olumide, who I rap with, he we both went to the same school as uh, Nato C. So... And we were actually both his seniors in school. So it was that we, I guess, Nato C and probably Banky W were the, I'd say, and probably us for a large extent, were like, I guess, the... Yeah, you, you guys were the like the first. Yeah, yeah, we're the guinea pigs. And it's funny because, like I say to people, like a lot of the artists that are now um doing great they're like i've spoken to a lot of their parents because i was that guy who well ah mrs davis's son is doing this music thing maybe we should have a chat with him <laughs> you know yeah, so yeah. i would have a I'd, like i met um there's a rapper lady po i met like through his mom knowing my mom and and i think i really feel his mom wanted me to intervene and tell him it was a stupid idea mm. <laughs> but um but unfortunately i didn't um, because he was he's really talented drb Uh, one of them tz his dad called me for a meeting um to have a chat with me and and it's funny like I, like literally a lot of people would literally refer to us you know as yeah and and for us it was it was it was also equally funny because you know my mom was never hostile towards it but i would say she was at some point she was maybe a bit disappointed in my choices i think she believed maybe that i was being brainwashed which is weird because a lot of people in my circle would probably say oh while is one leading this thing forward <laughs> right uh, so she, you, you were literally the rebel with the cause 
Yeah, I was probably the probably one of the, yeah, I was I was lumped with a bunch of other rebels, funny enough, but I think I think some of them had like you know when you're growing up and there always these bad kids that they warn you about. So I think maybe a couple of them had those bad kid reputations and I was the one that now everyone for some reason everyone thinks parents everyone thinks that i'm this saint and angel <laughs> and so they were probably like yeah wale is being led astray and you know and i had a lot of like interventions from family members and and yeah just like loads of people who just and even friends you know i think to be honest with you the most difficult transition was not really the older generation because you kind of steal yourself against those attacks you see them coming and you can like block you know i think the ones that are the most difficult were probably from your peers who Mm. somehow think that because you've taken this direction like you're maybe you've you've lost your mind or not even lost your mind but like you know i used to really get annoyed because some friends would talk about business opportunities, but they would never involve me in those conversations. And I'm just like, but guys, like I want these same opportunities too. And like, but you do music now. Like we thought you'd almost like, we thought you'd opted out. <laughs> like, or even like girls, when you're like talking to girls who you want to date or something. And, you know, you could tell that like, they're doing like mental calculations in their head. Like, okay, so this music, like, do you think you're going to do this forever? Like, you, like you, you know, maybe one day you might want to go back and work in a real job. Like, do you think this is like really what you want to do forever? Or some girls will tell you straight up, like, I don't date artists or musicians or entertainers or whatever, you know? So, I mean, yeah, I think those are the ones that, you know, from friends and, and, and people around sort of like the same age group, I think those are probably the more difficult ones to digest. Mm. And so you take that and then, but where's the confidence coming from to keep pushing forward? Because there's, there's, uh, you know, you, you've talked about your role in sort of, I guess, the greater music scene with the mentoring, etc. But there's also a level of sort of using your voice and activism in the industry for the industry that you do do. But where did the confidence for that come from? I think that if I was to look back at, I've been in Nigeria for about 11 years now, maybe, um, maybe even, maybe like 12 years now, actually. Um, and I think if I was to say, like, I guess what I've learned the most um, in that period is the fact that, like, like, I think I didn't realize how resilient I was before that period. I always thought I was someone that looked for the security, like financial security. Um, and that was key to me, um, as a person. And like, and so for me, I think, I think being in Nigeria, I, I want to say the confidence has come from falling down, getting back up, falling down, getting back up again. Like, and like, and I think that when you realize that actually, you know what, okay, I'm broke now. Like I'm broke. <laughs> like I have, and before I used to do this thing where I would always be stuck in, oh, you, you had a great apartment in Amsterdam. You had a great job that was paying you a lot of money. Now look at yourself. Yeah, you're regressing. And like, so I was always, there was always this inner conflict of, should I go back to corporate? Should I like, is it too late? Can I still? Um, and I think for me at a point, 
it was a very random conversation I had with someone and he's a, he's a film director actually. And he said something to me that really stuck. He said, he wakes up and he writes every day for an hour, every single day. And I said, wow, that's a lot of discipline. And he said, um, no, it's just a practice. It's a habit that I formed. And for me, the reason why, when I formed this habit was when I realized that I had opted out of normal, right? Like I have actually opted out of normal. I, I'm not, I've realized that I'm going to have to like plant my own garden and figure out how to make that grow. And there's a freedom that comes from that that means that like so for example now i was given an example yesterday somebody was talking to me about potentially coming to work for their organization in a creative sort of space and i'm very i'm able to be very blunt and very direct to them you know like i like i literally said to the person look i'm not if you're looking for someone to come to africa and like pack all our people on a slave ship that's not me find somebody else and even when i said it i was like part of me was like, ah, maybe you shouldn't have said it, but it's how I feel. And the freedom is that like, if he says tomorrow, like, no, nah, actually we don't want you. I'm still fine. Like, I'm still going to, you know, continue in life. So I think that that once I realized that I was actually free. Yeah. Like, I think that's what gives me confidence because, and, and this is what I tell like young people or creatives is that it's not like freedom is going to be, ugly uncomfortable annoying frustrating you know in parts but if you can ride those parts out like you you really really appreciate what you get at the other side of it with alternative music i guess aka independent and that transition for 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 you guys as a group um and and speaking to the entrepreneurship of that um, by and large, I guess you can give context in terms of, I guess, the African music scene. In the early days, you know, everyone was on a label. Um, and then I guess you guys were one of the first to start the independent mm. route, I'm, yeah. if, if yeah, I'm right in so. saying that, and, and, and being able to make a success mm. of it. Yeah, I think so. I think that um, everyone was on a label with air signals, because air quotes, because... Um, the labels back then really consisted of like one benefactor who had money to put in your career and um, and maybe depending on the benefactor, he might hire one or two other people. Um, I'd say the real labels were probably Chocolate City, um, EME, which Banky and his partners had, and um, maybe I'll say more hits at a particular time than Maven. And I feel like you know, for us, it was, it was never really, I mean, like, it was never really an option. Like we had a few situations where some people said, oh, my uncle wants to invest in music and would like to meet you guys. And we did go and honor those like conversations in the hope that maybe we would get some capital, which would mean we're not spending our own money all the time. Um, but like those never really went anywhere. Uh, and so for us, we literally learned that we had to just like, so I, like most of our videos I've shot, not because, you know, like one is more cost effective and two, yeah, and then I was able to like, you know, develop that as a skill that other people started to pay me for as well, you know? So for me, it's always been like bootstrapping and, and trying to figure out how to, you know, 
like what's the next and and i think that has made us very strategic with the music we put out as well um that's made us because you need like if you're going to shoot a video for this song like you need to be sure that this is the song to shoot a video for yeah and so like i mean it's made us very strategic in that it's also um but at the same time it's also helped our music in the sense where there's no one sitting over us telling us no that's not the hit like you need to find the hit like you were you know um we're able to take more risks we're able to and i think that's one of the things that like the people that listen to our music appreciate that it's it's very us like we're not trying to reach for something I mean, so half and half, like the independent journey to me has always been, because even if I had a benefactor who was dropping money, I would still want to guide the the process because I feel like I like I know the process and I know what to do. And that's just come from experience. That's come from my own knowledge or intelligence or whatever. Yeah, I think I think now when you look at what has happened over the last like so 10 12 years a lot of those labels have fallen apart in a way mainly because nigeria doesn't have the legal structure or framework to support the industry in that way so once an artist says i don't want to do it anymore the most you can do is maybe get an injunction and once you get that injunction, you're not eating, he's not eating. So your assets is depreciating by the day. So what tends to happen is people say, okay, you know what? Let me take 10% of your career going forward and you're free to go. Or some people just let you go completely because they don't need the hassle or the stress. But what happens then is that they may, their enthusiasm to invest more in the sector is dwindled completely now like so you know so you know it's a it's a very tricky space um but i don't even think record labels work in nigeria which is another (laughs) another discussion discussion. but owning owning your own i guess masters earning your own rights when you start looking at the landscape around streaming you know your spotify's etc now being able to to transition from and and to be fair, you're of the generation of, I guess, huge hip hop influence, right? Like mm-hmm. growing up Definitely. with, you know, Nas and all of those guys. I think yeah. that then changes. And, and I want to say there was a hip hop generation. I want to say anyone from like 77, 77 79 mm. through to like early 80s, if you're born within that, mm-hmm. that sort of space and time, mm-hmm. I think were the there was a huge export of hip hop and R&B from the US into Africa at the time. And and that really formed a lot of our taste in music and culture, even though we're all African, even though we're all African kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then being able to take that and fuse it with um, our own culture. And in so many ways, you guys were able to do that with music and you know make calling it sunlight sun, sunlight sunlight i don't know sunlight hip-hop sunlight rap um but it's a fusion right of the african influence and a huge sort of rap hip-hop influence i remember being a kid i have two older siblings and i remember you know there being parties and you know the goal was you know the boys would dress like crisscross um, and then it was Brandy came out and everyone, want, you know, the girls wanted braids in the same way as Brandy, like that, that generation. And then fast forward into this generation 
where you're watching still there being an influence of, you know, American hip hop R&B culture, but it's completely different in in what they're they're living. Um, I say that because of wanting to touch on, I guess, where your love for music kind of came from and, and how that shaped you. Right. Um, so I think that for me, my my love for music came from my older brother, actually, who would, um, because he lived in the UK, he'd come back every Christmas, um, sometimes in the summer, and he'd bring like his Case Logic CD um, booklet. Like he just had CDs and, you know, and he would have like from, remember every year like there were new cds so like you know from ice t to ice cube to uh nwa to gangsta to all sorts fushnikins yeah and then he started to graduate and i remember i like vividly remember the the year he brought back snoop dogg's first album and you know and that was like it's funny because I, i laugh with him now that like when there were certain albums that when he was going back, I just had to steal them. Like I was like, this album is not like, cause I don't know how, like in Nigeria, there's no HMV. There's no, you know, shop yeah. to go and buy this CD. So you never have it. And like me going back from the holidays with that new music, I'll be like the coolest kid in school. So mm-hmm. that Snoop Dogg mm-hmm. album, I think that was like 93 or 94 or something. I remember stealing that CD. Um, and I just feel that like so many things that like we, know as like like both consciously and subconsciously actually like we learned from hip-hop you know like I remember asking my uncle he's like a a younger uncle and I remember asking him once like what is uh, what's Indo what's gin and juice like rolling down the street smoking Indo what's that (laughs) you know and he was like it's a different kind of cigarette or something you know like and um there were just all these things and some of it is negative as well because you know like a lot of the perception towards women was formed by you know it ain't no fun if my homies can't have none i think and when you grow up you're like really wow is that what we were singing and rapping to ourselves and and i remember like going to like house parties in lagos at the time um and you go to these house parties and you dance to hip hop and, you know, like, and those house parties were so much fun because like they would, at some point they'll bounce everybody, all boys out. You have to come back in if you're cool enough. And, you know, and then at the end of the house party, it'll go to like blues where they play like slow or the like brandy SWV songs like that, where you get to dance with the girl that you like. Um, you know, and like music was always just there, like growing up as a teenager, like it was always there, even before my teens, my brother bringing the CDs, that was my first real sort of memories. I remember like birthday parties, you'd go and dance and do musical chairs and, and things like that and dancing competitions and, and all those things. And so it was always on the side. Um, and I think, you know, now when I grow up, like it's funny because my mom, um, casually would just drop some gems <laughs> like one she'd just be like oh so you know your dad used to be the Motown rep for West Africa and I'm like so how are you just telling me this now you know and she'd be like oh, yeah we knew Barry Gordy and you know and these people they were, we were friends with them you know and there's one Jewish guy she would say the name and I was like really and she's like yeah like you know uh, when they came 
for first act 77 Stevie Wonder even played in the house and I was like what and then she went and literally like brought us a picture of like Stevie Wonder playing in our house and I was just like what like so I think that there's also some I don't know if like I, I believe in different sort of ideas but I think that there is some genetic encoding that makes me like because I really 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 love music like it's not even a it's like if I wasn't if I was working in a bank or I was working in an oil company I would still set up a studio in my house and still be like listening and trying to create music even if it wasn't a profession I'd do it for free you know I like I really love discovering new artists and and things like that so I, I feel like there's something that yeah makes me that way and and really just and some concerts I've been to have been like you know almost I almost feel as though like is like there's some ethereal type of like moments in these like in the energy that's been transmitted um, in those concerts from the stage or to the artists on stage. And, and I really love like, you know, like I really love performing music as well for people. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think that it's just something that's been around like most of my life. And also I think probably before my life, like in my family, I guess. Now, I find that happens with me a lot now, especially with with my parents and 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 having become a, a parent recently, where and then they'll throw things out at you and you're like, didn't you think this was relevant <laughs> to for, for me to know? Um, and I and sometimes I question if it's a contextual time and place. This will only matter <clears throat> to you now because you're at that stage of life. Um, I tried touching on streaming and sort of the business of the music. Um, but then pre-social media, I guess that's when you guys were, you know, had some huge hits and then post-social media, you've also had some success. The role that plays and utilizing things like live and connecting directly with, you know, fans of your music, how is that shaping, I guess, show them camp and then, I would love to talk more about the video and film mm-hmm. directing. Um, you kind of touched on it. Mm-hmm. I guess it was a <laughs> needs must. Yep. I will pick up a camera and figure this out. Um, and, and I did the same thing. Mm-hmm. I shoot a lot of um, my campaign imagery for my for my business because I got tired of the, the end streaming. results. But we'll get to that. I think media. more more around yep. sort of social media and 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 streaming and using that as a platform and live. I think because for a lot of a lot of people. It seems straightforward when you get all these sort of YouTube videos and people are explaining it, but very few practitioners that are, you know, walking away with the success of it. And as an independent group, do you guys call yourself a group or a duo? Um, a duo, I'd say. But yeah, group is fine. <laughs> group, yeah. Group, some people call us group. We're, we're used <laughs> to all these tags now, so it's cool. I guess navigating the business of that because we're now in a digital era, right? So Korea started pre-digital sort of real influence. And then you have the likes of SoundCloud and then people are now figuring out how do I build an audience? Um, and then how do I reach that audience directly? And by and large in the music industry, you guys were, you guys are a lot of firsts um, in terms of pioneering. Um, but again, that was another space that you guys tapped into early on. Yeah. So I think that um, if the the shift hadn't happened to, um, you know, to digital platforms or so the Apple Musics and the Spotify's and 
um, and the way music currently is now, I don't think we would have survived. Um, I think, and the reason I say that is because I think that like, and, and, and like, what's the word? Uh, not alternatively, but like in another world, independent. I think, I think that if, if, if it had come earlier would probably be maybe even bigger than, we are now and the reason i say that is because when we first started in in nigeria the only way was to um pr- put your music on cds right um what happened then was that uh once your music were on cds you would then go and you know if you were big enough so let's say you were like a p square at the time who were huge um you had these marketers who for uh lack of a better word, they're pirates pi- pirates or whatever pirates who uh who steal your music right and they sell it and they mass produce it and they sell it so what had happened is that these guys were so powerful that the artists had to go and like make deals with the pirates i like, look we'll give you our music um because you're the biggest distributor right so rather than you stealing my music how about you pay me a fee for like the master license of the music and you can mass produce it and you know so it's like you pay me an upfront and then maybe you give me a cut of what you make but a lot of people yeah, focus a distribution on the off- deal. yeah you know a lot of people focus on the upfront because there's no way to track what they made you know you might have a benevolent uh, marketer who would come and give you some money back later, but usually they just pay you an upfront. Now for us who were not... So essentially the CDs were buying in traffic, et cetera. These are CDs put out by these marketers. Marketers, yeah. They they put their logo on it. They put their, like it's a business. Like like it became an actual business. There was a market called Alaba where you would go and, you know, do that. And there was like a big sort of like Igbo... Igbo community of marketers, you know, that you would go and meet because they had networks in the East and they would have the music going across places. So, you know, we've come in now, new guys on the scene don't really have like a, like a nationwide hit, right? So we've made this album, we've put Two-Face, NECA, all these people that are heroes, musically, MI, people like that. So we go to the marketers now, okay, we've got this album and then they listen to it and they say, no, it is not deep. Uh, current sound you know um so we're like okay well we're sure this will work because we have all these grace and they're like no no this is not the current sound you know there are no hits where the hits you know so they were in essence almost like record labels in themselves because for them to invest their money they had to hear things that would bring them roi um in the music um so you know they were like no hits no hits so we then schedule like a bunch of meetings with these guys. And one of them, the main one actually said to us, like the only way he would market the CD is if we paid him to market because his cost of distribution is a cost, is a, is a tangible cost. And he's, he doesn't know us. He doesn't know if we're going to make the music work. So actually we should pay him, you know, like to use his distribution network. You know, we're like, no, we can't. That makes no sense. We can't do that. Like, um, how can we create the music then pay you to pirate our music? Like, obviously, yes, you're distributing it. But anyway, so we went back very disappointed, didn't really know what to do. We actually went to this place, Alaba, which is like almost like on the best day with the traffic, like a three plus hour drive in Lagos. Right. So, you know, then we came up with this bright idea that, okay, why don't we 
invest in a in a marketer right like why don't we get our own marketer in a lab and you know and then we can like get into this business like we're young we didn't really know that like is a cartel but like why don't we get our own little stall and so we found a guy in a lab we paid for a store for a year um we paid him some money to stock up on new seed, new music and stuff that he was going to distribute. He distributed our album for us. We never got, or at least not to my knowledge, we never got one penny back in that return. I think that guy probably just thought, look at his Muppets from Chokers. Oh, yeah, You've given me a store for a year, thinking I'm going to actually come and give them some money back. Money, um, yeah. You know, but what was crazy was that like, as a result, we had no way of knowing how our music was doing. Nigeria was very difficult then for um, for upcoming new artists because then you'd like yeah. everything was almost like a the role of the radio. The radio was pay for play, so you know, so like if you don't have resources, you're not the biggest artist, and then you know you can't get resources unless you're a big artist. So it was, or unless you have a label behind you, you know, so it was now like, damn, like, what do we do? So um, some radio stations supported like Beat FM and people like that supported just, you know, with no, with no uh, inducements or whatever. Um, and so we put out this first album, you know, and then the first time we actually toured, um, did a tour around the country with some other artists was when we realized that, ah, hold on, like people actually know these songs and they're singing them back to us. So maybe this CD did, because there was no way to measure the growth or measure what it did. And so now fast forward to now where with streaming, the first thing that is vindicated for me with streaming is the fact that we are independent. So in this period of covid and lockdown like we've been getting paid every month <laughs> pretty much and as well like you know a lot of artists like 70 anywhere from let's say like 50 to 70 percent of your revenue is taken by your label you know so in this period where it's literally just we're just splitting it two ways and <laughs> we keep it moving it's been a blessing in this period i also think that like you know the fact that we're able to just like you know because we've always been like very militant in that no we're not paying radio no we're not paying tv so actually like you know if you don't play it that's your own you know and it's hindered us for a long time but now it's now a more democratized setup where it's youtube it's instagram it's social media you can create a song here now in london ghost can create his verse in lagos we put it out and it's gone around the world tomorrow you know and so for me it's like now the the playing field is somewhat even and i think that's where people begin to realize that it's weird like on social media platforms maybe we have about 50 to sixty thousand, if that like uh, followers across platforms but for me it's also been a case of like I'm happy with like a fan a day a real fan not a follower like a real fan somebody who comes across our music and is like wow I really like these guys I'm going to support because what happens is that those are the people that are willing to put disposable income behind your music you know not just streaming but like when we do shows like every show we've done in the last three four years has been sold out and you have artists that have like half a million followers who can't pack a 500 capacity venue. 
you know so it's like are they really for are they really your fans or people that are just following you because that's the cool thing to do but they have no emotional attachments or investment in your music you know so for us i think it's been a really um it's been a really like it's been a real roller coaster but i think that you know for for countries like nigeria i think technology is actually you know, obviously technology has its downsides, but technology is actually the key to a lot of our problems. Even if you look at it from a socioeconomic perspective, the reason why, you know, people are shouting today about rape or the reason why they eventually spoke about bringing back our girls was because some other people use technology to amplify those stories to the point where the Nigerian government got embarrassed really and they were like oh now we have to stamp uh, you know we have to end rip or we have you know and it's it's that public glare that technology has given us because otherwise before these things have been happening for time you know it's just like no one sheds the light no one amplifies so i think technology is is a good equalizer for places like nigeria where we need a we need a serious like evolution in our mindset and our practices and our outlook and our views everything and the only thing that can jump start that evolution based on where we currently are is technology in my opinion very much so i think it's playing a huge part in our ability to get our voices heard our ability to put out our versions of things right um whether that's music um i think one of the the key things for me when i looked at starting the podcast was being able to have a lot of these conversations which by and large happen in private um where for the most part people don't get to understand how it was done and how you guys are able to to make a living out of say for instance music um, as one of the sort of earlier entrants into the scene, you guys have seen that change and also then evolving into, you know, like a, a creative entrepreneur and into then the video and film film directing. You've worked with lots of international brands, not just, I guess, on the local African scene. How have you been able to, one, reach sort of the rest of Africa with your music and then to, you know, work with people like Visa, Netflix, Farfetched, Kenzo, Emirates. Yeah. I guess like at a crossroads, I was at a crossroads in like maybe, I think it was either 2014 or 2015. I'm not sure now, but around then I'd like gone through some different life changing experiences. I had, um, I had, I was probably that was probably our least productive year musically. Yeah, there was just a lot going on. And so what happened was, yeah, basically I just crossed those and I met a friend who introduced me to her partner at the time, who was starting up a an online TV platform. Um it's called Disrupt TV. And so he then met me and was like, What do you do? And I said, Yeah, I'm a musician. Um, but my friend, she was like really she's really been one of those people that really champions you. Like, cause I don't really like to, I, I cringe a lot when I have to like sell myself, you know, what I do. 
Um, and so she's like, no, but Wale shoots videos as well. He just shot a video for NECA. He just did this. And I think the guy was a huge fan of NECA at the time. So he was like, oh, can I see the video? And I showed him the video and he was like, oh, wow, I'd love to get your number if you don't mind. I'd like to discuss some like business opportunities with you. And I was like, yeah, sure. So he called me about a week later and he was like, he wants to start up this platform. He's looking for his moved back to Nigeria and he hasn't really been able to find people that he can trust because, you know, there's a lot of capital he has to put into setting up something like this. And he just doesn't want people who just chop his money or, you know, who don't know what they're doing or whatever. And because his girlfriend at the time had vouched for me um, that like he would wanted to see if I was interested in doing that. And he's like, look, I know you're a musician, so it'll be a flexible job. We will build it out together. Um, I'll pay you a monthly salary, you know, um, so what would it take? And I, at the time, like I was probably like coming off like my lowest ebb <laughs> in the 12 years I'd been in Nigeria. So it was actually a godsend when he came and I was like, okay, well, yeah, like I called an amount. He was like, yeah, fine. I was like, damn, I should have said more. Um, and then we start building this team together and we train up about like 15, 18, like directors because i'd been shooting videos right and i'd gone to film school so i had like an idea of how to like you know what i thought was necessary um because i feel going back to what i said about technology i feel that like where we need to catch up with education is to like literally figure out a way to like let's get to the tip of the arrow like what is necessary for this economy we don't need to learn all the other stuff that we're never going to ever use what are the tools that somebody can literally go out and fish with now you know so for me like we had these we trained these guys and it was the first time to actually try some of those things in training other people and it was really good like we we trained cameramen presenters we made them watch and it was very technology based as well so we'd get videos of presenters on youtube we'd make them watch we'd analyze why does a presenter speak like this why you know this is how to look at the camera and we did this training for a period of like four or five months and we began creating content um and so creating the content the company lasted for i'd say just just under two years um i think it was a very ambitious project i think to have 20 people on salary <laughs> for two years um aiming to build an pure, a purely online platform in a country like nigeria where there's obviously data issues connectivity issues um he was trying to build like a a, a vice or something you know and i think it was a bit too ahead of his time you know, um, I, I think even now would still be ahead of his time based on the data in Africa. But anyway, um, but what that did was that it gave me like one confidence back in a lot of ways um, because I was able to then apply a lot of like my corporate background or processes or whatever into work and and then to trained up all these guys who a lot of them I still work with and a lot of them I've gone on to do more amazing things. And it also showed me the the opportunities around capacity development in Nigeria, where I feel the main thing that have been bringing the youth any recognition has been the creative industries from art to music to film to and so for me, I really feel that like there needs to be a, a, an emphasis to actually get people up to global standards. 
you know, there needs to be training in those spaces. But anyway, so when the company split up, I cherry picked a few of the people um, that we had trained and I started my own sort of like smaller, really lean production outfit, um, which was just like servicing, um, we'd come up with create and people had seen the work we had done. So then um, there was like an art fair, Artex Lagos that was coming. I basically pitched like a whole visual campaign around that. Um, and so basically I handled all their visuals, visual communication for the first year of the art fair um, with that team. And then we filmed everything, covered the entire thing. So I think that was our first like major um job as a new company and then from there other people saw that work you know and got us to do more work i knew a few people in like agencies so i sent the work to them they'd seen it so they gave me more work and then my brother who's a film director as well in the uk he came to nigeria to shoot a few projects so he came to do a kenzo project actually um so we produced that for him because i was just like well Aside from directing, we know the lay of the land, so we can tell you where to go, how to move around. These are things I'd had to encounter and learn myself, area boys, different things going on. Um, so we did that for him. And then, you know, he was working with, you know, a bigger production company in the UK. So they would always be like, oh, well, there's a guy, Wale, who did this other job for us. So, like, they were throwing work my way. And then as you begin to do one, yeah, you start doing another. And then I partnered with, there was a lady as well who, whenever these jobs would come, it would either go to like me or her. So then we had to do a job together once. And we just said, actually, you know what, why don't we like work together? Because, you know, your fees in there, my fees in there. So we're not like, yeah. it's not like it's making our resources. No one's stepping on anyone's toes. Yeah. Exactly. And we had a great like synergy. Um, so then, yeah, we partnered up and, and then that even meant more jobs from like both our, um, I guess, networks. And yeah. And, Amazing. Yeah. And so then travel for you is, what word can I use? About enlightenment? Yeah, I think travel for me is about enlightenment. And also I feel, so my thoughts are very, if I to touch on some of them, I would say like, I don't really believe in a lot of like the, I guess, borders that have been created, you know, I don't really ascribe to that, you know, um, especially because like even within the borders, like the concept of a lot of the countries that we have in Africa, I'm talking about particularly um, a lot of those countries, the structures don't even work. The makeup of those com countries don't even work at all. It's like literally like a child took a pen and just drew it a weird shape or <laughs> like that's a country losing Nigeria as an example where the north of Nigeria is more um has more in common with like Niger Chad Mali those countries on the northern side um in Ghana there's like a Fulani community as well there's a you know the people in Bene and Togo are their language almost sounds like francophone because they were colonized by the French, but it has bits of Yoruba in it as well um, because it's this hybrid French-Yoruba uh, thing, you know. So for me, I've always just been fascinated with exploring different African countries, um, going to just like meet people and just like getting, it, like throwing myself into um, I don't, I don't like, I don't like uh, uh, or the franchise hotels or things like that I just need to like go in and just really feel the pulse of places and meet people. And I feel like there's a lot to learn from 
because I, I also feel as Africans, like we've grown up with, as as has the rest, most of the rest of the world, we've grown up with a very Eurocentric view of history and education. So it's when I go to Ghana and I hear, learn, oh, this is the Ashanti kingdom. And, you know, their kings were around for this amount of time. And this is it. And then I'm learning history like firsthand in real experiences. Um, and I feel like that's something that, it's a shame that like it has to be that because I feel there's such a rich history that like like and it's so weird why you know um of all the low hanging fruits that I think African countries have um or would be allowed to pursue that's a very like obvious one you know but so yeah I, I enjoy that I enjoy you know I've been to quite a few African countries learning I remember when I went to Rwanda and they were telling me about the genocide there how like and I was like, so what is it? Tribes? And they were like, no, nah, there's like literally no tribes. It was mm. just like the wiped, wiped, wiped Belgians. Out. And, yeah, they just wiped people out. Yeah, they just literally said, they literally said, you are this and you are this. And as a result, you are going to rule these other guys. And that's what, but like in terms of like language, in terms of any remarkable feature, there's really no difference between there was just a clear separation of people um so it's just things like that that like really fascinate me and just learning still like observing the trauma a lot of african countries are still in um but also the um, i guess like richness a lot of and then african people are really like despite everything they've i guess endured they're really um yeah really beautiful warm people i couldn't agree more and I guess with music, you're able to reach far more people. And, you know, there's a level of activism, a, you know, a pan-African activism in, in, in the work that you do with music. And also, you know, you've touched on your passion for younger generations and the education and, and the use of technology in, in creating those solutions for the future. Is there a particular set of changes within I guess the creative industry or music industry I guess, you know creatively you, you're in you know visual arts as well as you know music that you would hope for for Africa to help foster that industry a little bit more because there's something about it I think in, in recent years it, it almost feels like it's reserved for those with privilege and if you don't have that then you are local in air quotes right what would you be hoping for I guess moving forward because you know we're now in an era where there can be as a genre afro beats or afro hip-hop afro fusion whatever you want to call it is now becoming global and recognized and given the airplay and the recognition mm. that it deserves. Yeah. I think I hope for a number of things. I think the first thing I hope for is that we learn from the, so if you go back to like the music industry, right? Like the music industry was uh, especially like what we know now is, and different genres that we know now were genres that were, um, a lot of them were taken from a lot of the music was were created by black people 
in the American civil rights era and slightly before that as well. So um, a lot of these genres were, you know, were then monetized in essence um, and and then packaged and and then sold, you know, for mass consumption, right? And the structures that were set up then were heavily skewed towards maintaining I guess like you can't have one thing in isolation. So it's like maintaining, I guess, like a, a societal structure. Um, it's the same thing with like with like sports, actually, in the US, where it's still sports is also like a microcosm of like society where you have all the black people running around in the field, literally a field. <laughs> and, you know, the people that get paid the most, the owners of those fields and the owners of those sports teams usually don't look like them and you know the same thing in the music industry as well and but in the music industry the contracts and the structure and setup of those music industries highly highly skewed in in favor of um in favor of like the corporate organizations that run them and i think you know now you can argue that like you know there's so many different genres of and different people doing music that all of us are getting these same types of contract irrespective of race or irrespective of color. Um, but I think that what has happened now in Nigeria and Africa is that we've created an ecosystem where like we don't really need anyone. The main thing we may need people for is maybe cracking the mainstream in America, cracking the mainstream in the UK, because there's a structure, there's a structural approach to those places for you to get on certain platforms and shows in the UK and America, which will guarantee you mass eyeballs on you. You need to play a certain game. But the first thing is I feel a lot of African artists don't even need that. If I'm being honest, like we're not like pop, like we're never going to, you know, fully be like, even us at show them camp, for example, like I, like, my aim is to be able to tour the world with my music. My aim is to be able to continue to collaborate with people that I, I love and respect as musicians or as creative talents. That's it. I don't really think that, you know, I want to be the biggest. I don't want to be, I don't know, Justin Bieber or, or Drake. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not aiming for that. That's not my, um, so I, I don't, I, I wouldn't sign a major record deal now. Um, unless I used it as a, okay, these guys are paying me half a million dollars and this is, I don't know, some kind of retirement fund for myself, you know, and I'm happy to trade off my music for that. You know, that's one way to look at it, but I don't really think there's any need for us to sign to a major label. And so I feel some artists will require that, like some artists that want to be huge, big, mega global superstars will require those machines and systems. But I really hope we learn um, that we have the control currently and we should not give that away cheaply. And I also hope that, you know, one of another initiative that I'm working on behind the scenes is actually to talk to not just the musicians, but talk to people in the music space. Because it's people like me or people that are my peers that these companies will hire when they come into this space. So how do we you know, learn from other mistakes and actually come together prior or now that they've even started hiring some of us, how do we align and map out what our own agenda is? 
you know so regardless of where you might work in a sony you might work in a universal we're all aligned you know we're aligned in thought we're aligned in direction we're aligned in the type of agreement you know and so and i feel that you know i feel like that's very important i also feel that like another thing that i've realized is that even now talking on a black sort of global perspective the only thing that has been able to create any meaningful dialogue between african americans africans in africa and even like british uh black british right is music and the creative arts those are the bridges really because you know for the longest time you know even in england when i was here like i would i was almost ashamed you know blah like, oh, my name's sean you know when i was uh, like, yeah. <laughs> at a point because you know like i'd been in dublin and i'll tell them wally and they'd be like where's wally and you know just like random yeah. stuff so i was just like yeah it's easy as sean you know and and yeah. I had like all sorts of Nigerian friends that call themselves the most ridiculous names. Um, yeah. Just because to be fair, I, I did have a friend, Shimon, who called himself Sean. Yeah, and I had a friend who called himself be, Pharrell. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even joking, Pharrell. Like, because yeah. it would be at university. And, and, and look, I think with Black Lives Matter, with even just looking at the social shift of questioning cultural norms and values across the world, dealing with COVID, the pandemic, navigating all of these things in what is a collective global traumatic incident and the healing power that music brings to that. I know that, you know, I'm able to shift my mood by playing, you know, a playlist or some songs. I remember sort of going through, um, by and large, again, a lot of, you know, Shodem Camp's early work and, and you know, how, how that captures a snapshot in time and not losing the value of that. Now, I, I think one of the things with the show that's important for me to highlight is, you know, for a long time within our culture, especially as Africans, you know, everyone has this strong view of what success needs to look like. And that looks like, as you're saying, a Drake or a, you know, it, it needs to be that level of success. And I'm pleased that you've been able to articulate beautifully what that means for you and what your ambitions are within that. And I think, as a collective, as a creative, as an entrepreneur, you have contributed an immense amount to to our culture, and you know this is this is an opportunity for for me as someone who has enjoyed um, your work to give you your flowers and and also to and also to hopefully curate as best as possible a platform that gives the next generation, our peers, anyone looking for the inspiration or motivation to carry on in purposeful work. Because a common thread is each guest is doing work that is beyond the money, beyond the remuneration. It's very much, I believe in what I'm doing. I understand the context of being an African entrepreneur and and the weight of that and, and how that plays into what happens in 10 years, 20 years in creating sustainable industries and an opportunity to create the infrastructure or even just the ability for someone else to make a difference in their lives and generations to come. 
Yeah. I'm thankful for you giving <laughs> of your time. No, thank you. <laughs> and where, where does everyone find you? Um, yes, I mean, across all like platforms, literally show them can. But one thing I do want to say as well, just to touch on what you just said, I feel that it's very important for people to, um, like you said, curate these uh, dialogues because because I feel that like there needs to be balance in everything. There needs to be balance in the narratives that we have been that we're being told and also and in that even the balance of us telling our narratives ourselves i think is very very important and as and you know for me if there's one thing i can say to anybody young creatives whoever that might come across it's just like if you move with integrity everything everything will open up and sometimes it might be in the in the spaces we're from it might be counterintuitive to move with integrity but i think that you know once you find yourself doing that like you will meet people along the way that will help you and your own journey and your own purpose becomes clearer as you move along as well so yeah thank you for your time at show them camp um for everything all the instagram twitter and all those things and yeah thank you so much for your work as well (laughs) thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Third Culture Africans, the Lifestyle Podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook or Instagram at Third Culture Africans and leave us a comment. A review goes a long way in getting our show notice. So please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.